Okay, well, we are going to finish up a brief series that I started a few weeks ago on signs and wonders. So the series title is Signs, Wonders, and Redemption, Understanding uh, the Miraculous for Today. Right? Understanding how the miraculous functions, really, in God's unfolding plan of redemption. And this morning, we're looking more narrowly at understanding the way that God is working today. So, signs, wonders, and redemption. Understanding specifically the way that God is working today. If you're not aware of this, there's a lot of controversy about how God works today, right? You could probably go to uh, whatever neighboring churches are around here and ask um, someone, a member there, how does God work today? And you could get uh, many different answers, some of them uh, stranger than the next, I'm sure. The reason for that is that For whatever reason, uh, the question of how God works in the world has become controversial. And we know that God's word is the final arbiter of truth. But I found this quote by Sinclair Ferguson to be helpful. And this has sort of driven, uh, sort of been the underlying motive, uh, or not motives, the underlying method Um, for my study of signs and wonders, he says this, When a doctrine becomes a matter of controversy, Christians often fail to think about it in the context of the whole of Scripture and also in the context of other doctrines which are closely related to it. I'll read that again. When a doctrine becomes a matter of controversy, Christians often fail to think about it in the context of the whole of Scripture, and also in the context of the other doctrines which are closely related to it. So in terms of a forest and tree analogy, what happens in controversy is we often go from one tree to the next tree to the next tree, and we just sort of go on and on, and and we argue about one text versus another text versus another text, and you know you're you're talking with a friend, and you're you know you're walking through the forest, so to speak. And they say, "Well, God does this because this tree." And then you say, "Well, no, 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 no." But look at this tree. And then the other one goes to this tree, and you just sort of look at trees, and you you tend to get lost in the very narrow focus of whatever the controversy is. And so, what I have wanted to do for us is to sort of take a step back. And, and get a picture, a larger picture of how signs and wonders function in God's plan of redemption. And so we've sought to understand how, first, how, God's, how God used signs and wonders at particular places in points of redemption. And we made a point in the first week that God's plan to save the nations, save the world, is an unfolding plan. Right, so we sort of drop in, when we're reading our Bibles, we drop in at particular places in God's unfolding plan of redemption, and we see Him doing extraordinary things. And we want to be careful that we don't undervalue 
the power and the ability of God for today, God can do whatever He wants to do. Amen? Right? God's hands are never tied. He, Psalm 115.3, He is in the heavens, and He does whatever He pleases. Right? But we also we want to be careful that we don't look at these sections of Scripture when we're seeing a, a very unique event unfolding in God's plan of his, uh, redemptive history and say, well, God, you split the, the Red Sea for Israel. Why don't you split this little river for me as I'm walking? And I'm talking literally. That's not a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't want to take what God's done in specific narratives of Scripture and take that as a descriptor for how God is always going to work in our lives, right? So we've we talked about understanding how God's plan is unfolding, um, how that's a crucial part in understanding the function of signs and wonders. And then last week, or two weeks ago now, we looked at the imagery of of God's unfolding plan of redemption, specifically regarding the church, as a building, the imagery of a building. So turn to Ephesians 2. So in the first week, we were looking at sort of a linear unfolding of God's redemptive plan from Old Testament to New Testament, really emphasizing that God doesn't change his mind or rework his methodology or, uh, you know, Um, edit the Old Testament when we get to the New Testament. The New Testament is a continuation of God's unfolding plan of redemption. And so that's sort of a linear perspective. But then there's, when we come to the New Testament and look at the apostolic era, there's another way for us to think about signs and wonders and how they function. And Paul uses uh, the analogy of a building or structure in Ephesians 2 in verse uh, 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Remember the context here, he's talking about Jew and Gentile relations. And in in the book of Acts, we see that one of the ways that God used signs and wonders was to convince his dear apostles uh, that the Gentiles were actually going to be included in his plan of redemption. And so we remember the story of Peter, which is just one that is so funny and fascinating to me, where Peter says he's preaching and the Gentiles believe the gospel and they receive the Spirit and the sign is there and God confirms by, by the baptism of the Spirit that he's going to save Gentiles as well. And Peter is just sort of wide-eyed and I don't know what's happening here. Um, but God is obviously at work, and he goes back to the apostles, and the apostles say, what were you doing, Peter? What were you doing with those Gentiles? And Peter says, all I know is I preached, and the same thing that happened to the Jews in Acts 2 happened to the Gentiles, and I was not going to get in God's way, right? You can do it. I'm not going there. But we see this unfolding plan of God, the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be made into one new man, right? according to Ephesians 2. And we see that as the church. So, verse 19, you are fellow citizens now with the saints and are of God's household, 
Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, we usually think of the foundation of the church as Christ. And we're right. But there are two other stones that are important when we're thinking about uh, the church. And also when we're trying to understand the function of signs and wonders. The apostles and the prophets. And these two stones were laid with Christ as the cornerstone. These two stones were laid and they were affirmed as foundation stones through the working of signs and wonders. We see this in Acts 2. We see this in other places in the the, uh, New Testament epistles where the apostle Paul specifically says that the signs of an apostle were the ability to work signs, wonders, and miracles. And the apostles also were overseeing these, uh, what we would call confirmatory or revelatory gifts of the Spirit in the church. As God was building His church um, on these foundation stones, and as these, fo- as these stones were laid, and as the church was being, uh, the structure itself was being built, the apostles were overseeing the use of these miraculous, uh, we would call them revelatory or confirmatory gifts of the Spirit. And so the, the house illustration really gives us a, a way of understanding signs and wonders. It gives us somewhere, uh, a way to understand why did God use those in his redemptive plan. And so, it's important for us to understand in Ephesians 2, the foundation has been laid. God is not laying another foundation. You don't do that. So God's not laying another foundation. There are no apostles. There are no revelatory prophets at work right now. The foundation has been laid. And God is now building up his church on this foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And the New Testament calls you and me, in 1 Peter 2, living stones. Right? And we're being built upon this foundation. We're fitted together into a temple of God. Okay, so what we have seen then is that God is the person, the being, carrying out His plans, and He works according to His purposes. What we want to do is try to understand how God employs signs and wonders as His plan unfolds. And here's my point. I just want to emphasize this. Not that you need to, you don't, I know that you know this, but sometimes we forget this when we're, you know, going from tree to tree and having some sort of discussion with our neighbors. This is God's plan. This is God's plan. It's not our plan. So statements like, well, why would God use signs and wonders in the New Testament and he doesn't use them right now? I mean, I can argue some reasons for that biblically, but ultimately that's God's plan. Right? It's not my job to tell God how to operate and carry out His plan. What we want to do is, is understand our part 
in God's larger plan. We don't want to be the one saying, God, well, you need to do it this way or this way. All right. What has God said? How is God working? And we want to join in and, and humbly submit to God's plan. Our objective is always to submit ourselves to God. We want to position ourselves underneath God's word and live out what God commands us. And we want to adopt a hermeneutic of submission. A hermeneutic of submission. That simply means this is God's word and we just, we just camp out right here. Right? What has God said? I just want to be underneath it. Okay, that's what, what's what our aim is. And practically, that means that we want to do things God's way. Right? We want to do things God's way. In the New Testament era, the Holy Spirit gave revelatory and confirmatory gifts to the church. The apostles oversaw these things, things like tongues and prophecy and miracle working. These were unique gifts that were meant to accomplish God's specific purpose at that specific point in history. Now, this position is normally called cessationism. By that, we mean that the revelatory and confirmatory gifts of the Spirit are no longer in operation. Let me say that differently. The revelatory or miraculous gifts of the Spirit are not in operation at this point in redemptive history. Why, you, may, you might ask? Well, that's essentially what I argued in the first two lessons. Right? God is doing something unique in redemptive history, and right now, God is not um, employing the gifts, the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. God is not giving new revelation, and He's not confirming any prophets or apostles through miracle signs and wonders. Okay, that's all introduction. You look sleepy. I just read a lot, and I get that that could be... Um, could call you to lull a little bit. Stuart has coffee, and I'm glad Stuart has coffee. Um, here, here's where all that is leading us. When, when we say that we're cessationists, often what people hear is God has ceased working. Right? God is no longer working. And so if God is not doing anything... Um, According to, when we say we're cessationists, people hear God is not working, and they think that we believe that God is not doing anything. Um, if, if God is not giving the people of, of, his people, the gift of tongues and revelatory prophecy and signs and wonders and all this thing, what is God doing? Well, I mean, what, what do we do if we don't have signs and wonders, Right? How do you have church without signs and wonders? I mean, I know that you know how we do that. So we're, we're often charged with putting God in a box. And we are thought to essentially have for a God a cold and distant deity who's not working in our midst. And we are 
often charged with undervaluing the work of the Holy Spirit. Those are big charges. I think they're very wrong, and I want to show you why. Um, my question is, okay, if that's true, what, what, if God is not doing signs and wonders today, what is God actually doing, and what should we expect from him? Okay? I want to give you four things. What is God doing in the world? And what ought we to expect from him today? Four, four things. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to phrase them in a way um, that is, is suggesting um, what may seem like a contradiction. You know, we're, off, we're called cessationists, but I'm going I'm to phrase this in a way that shows that we don't think God has ceased from working. Okay? First, we can expect God to continue to save sinners His way. Right? We expect... God to continue to save sinners His way. Often the, the argument about signs and wonders is, is uh, framed with cessationism and continuationism. Right? Has the Spirit ceased His work or is the Spirit continuing His work? We believe the Spirit is continuing His work. Right? Uh, the Spirit, uh, the third person of the Trinity, is, is at work. And he is continuing to do his work, but he's doing it his way. And what is God's way? Well, God's way at this specific juncture in redemptive history is to save sinners through human means, human agents. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to Romans 11. So at this particular point in redemptive history, I have argued that God is saving Gentiles. This is God's plan to save Gentiles. This, this particular point in history is called the ingathering of the Gentiles. And that comes right out of Romans 11. I'm going to read a few verses for you. Romans 11, verse 25. For I do not want you... Brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with him when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Paul's argument here is that God is, is carrying out a plan. He's hardened the, gent the, the, the Israelites at this particular point in history, but his plan 
in hardening the Israelites is to open wide His mercy to Gentiles so that Gentiles come in. It's almost as if, um, he says this deliberately, that Gentiles are now enjoying the blessings that belong to Israel. Meaning that we were, our, our ancestors were not the ones who were given the oracles of God. Right? We were the ones sort of provoking Israel to go sacrifice to Molech and, and do all these things. We have Gentile ancestry. Right? But we are now, according to Ephesians 2, as Gentiles, grafted in to God's covenant with His people Israel. And we are enjoying all the blessings of the Messiah, of Christ. They're ours in Christ. All these things are ours. And, and, and it's in order to, uh, as far as what Paul says in Romans, to somehow make the, the Jews jealous because we Gentiles have all the blessings of the Messiah and they have rejected Him. Right? We are inheritors of everything in Christ. It's all ours. And God's ongoing agenda is to bring more and more Gentiles into His kingdom. We use the word nations typically, right? We want to see the nations come to Christ. That's another way of saying Gentiles, right? Jesus said in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, or so make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Christ's agenda for us, for his church, is to take the gospel to the nations. That's our focus. And because that is our focus, we can expect that God is going to cause that to bear fruit. God is saving the world, right? It's incredible. He is at work bringing sinners to himself. And you know what? He calls you and I to participate in that extraordinary work. If you flip back to Romans 10, this is a, just a great passage. Romans 10 and verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's a lot of stuff about Jews and Greeks. Uh, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. <laughs> Meditate on that for a little while. Abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, so this is a, a key passage about Jew-Gentile relations. It doesn't matter. Jew, Gentile, whoever, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. But then Paul says this in verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? God is saving the nations. But the nations will not believe and will not hear and will not repent unless someone goes to them with the gospel. God's design is to take the the gospel to the nations 
And as the gospel is proclaimed, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to Jew first and then to the Gentile. God's desire is, design is preach the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And as the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit of God causes the Word to come to life. In John 6, the Spirit brings conviction on the hearer. The Spirit brings about the new birth. John 3. John 6 says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The Spirit and the Word. The Spirit works through His Word to accomplish His purpose. One of the the problems with being infatuated with signs and wonders is that it draws us away from the main agenda that we have at this point in history. And that is to proclaim the Word of God. Proclaim the Gospel to the nations. And watch the Spirit, God the Spirit, open the eyes of the blind. That's what we want to be about. That is the thing that awes, should awe us. We don't want to be awed by things that aren't awesome, right? We don't want to be awed by things that don't awe God. We want to be awed by the conversion of sinners. And that's what we are to be about, right? And we can expect that God is going to continue to use human agency, that is, me and you sharing the gospel with our colleague at work, in order to bring about the conversion of the nations. That's what God is after. The salvation of the Gentiles for His own glory. We are God's ambassadors, God's spokesmen. It is our responsibility to proclaim the truth. And we need to remember it's not our responsibility to save the sinner. We can't do that. We have one objective. Proclaim the gospel. And, and see the Spirit of God work. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the open statement of truth, or by the manifestation of truth, We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We refuse to practice cunning or underhanded ways. We state the truth because we know that God the Spirit uses the truth to open the hearts of um, sinners. Okay, we'll come back to another thing. You know, there's so much to say about these topics. But we can expect that God is going to continue to save sinners His way. And we want to be doing that work. So, Lord, let us not be distracted by all the things we could be distracted with, including signs and wonders, the pursuit of of, um, tongues and, and revelatory prophecy and that sort of thing. We want to be about the thing God's about. Second, We can expect for God to continue to heal the sick His way. 
We can expect that God will continue to heal the sick His way. What can we expect from God when we are sick? What do you expect from God when your loved one is sick? Well, the answer of many is that we are not only to expect God to heal, we demand Him to heal in the name of Jesus. We claim healing through Christ's death. And by their interpretation of Scripture, if we do not get healed, it's because we lack sufficient faith. Let me read you a few quotes. Not that you need these, um, you're aware of these things, but... Let me read a few. Uh, This is from a self-proclaimed expert in supernatural healing. If you are a believer in Christ, healing is your inheritance. Healing flows because of what Jesus has done and who he is. You do not have to deserve it. You do not have to be a saint to have a miracle. All you have to do is get doubt out of the way. The best way to do that is to go straight to the Gospels and learn from the Master. Study the Gospels until you are convinced That it is God's will to heal you. The good news is for everyone. When Jesus healed the multitudes, he healed everyone who was present. Not true. We're going to see that that's not the way it happened. But he healed everyone who was present. And that included people just like us. He never turned anyone who who wanted healing away. Doubt is the main thing that prevents healing from flowing. We, we may doubt whether the scriptures actually teach healing, or we may wonder if it is true for us personally. Anyone, even strong believers, can have personal doubt. I knew a healing minister who saw miracles when he prayed for others, but when he got cancer, he could not receive healing for himself. And then, here's the last one. When we uncover hidden doubts, we can get rid of the barriers that separate us from the life-giving presence of Jesus And we will be able to say, I've got it. I've got my miracle. Is this right? Is this what we ought to expect from God when we're sick? You know the answer is no, absolutely not. And it's a tragedy that this sort of ministry has so much traction um, but where do we go? Where do we go to think rightly about healing? And what, what ought our expectations to be about healing? We go to Scripture. And let me give you a few reasons very quickly. And um, if you're interested in more uh, of this, we can talk. But I'm just going to have to fly over these things. But uh, give me, let me give you a few common characteristics of a healing in Scripture. Healing in Scripture is always immediate. Within minutes, it was public. Healings took place on ordinary, unplanned occasions. There were no healing crusades. Healings included untreatable illnesses by medicine. Healings in Scripture, these are miraculous, were complete and irreversible. And they were undeniable by everyone who saw them. Jesus' opponents didn't question the authenticity of the miracle. They sought to um, 
discredit him. Right? They sought to demonstrate that he was doing the things he did by the power of Beelzebul. It's a demonic influence. That's how he can do these things. So first, when we look at the healings in the Scripture, uh, these were the common characteristics. These characteristics do not align with what we see in healing crusades, in charismatic healings, and that sort of thing uh, today. Second, many people were, were healed in Scripture who did not exercise faith. Many people were healed in Scripture who did not exercise faith. In fact, they couldn't exercise faith, right? You tell me, how does Lazarus exercise faith? No one wants to go. What about Jairus' daughter? Even Peter's mother-in-law, who has a fever, the way that the text reads, it seems like she's not even coherent, right? But she's healed. Um, the widow's son in name. She's, she's there. This is a funeral procession, and Jesus sees it. She doesn't ask for it. Jesus just walks up and heals. Not heals, he, he causes this, this child to rise from the dead. She doesn't exercise faith. She didn't even ask for, it, for him to come. What about mute, demon possessed men? One of the problems there was that they had lost control. They were under control of demonic powers. Certainly they weren't exercising faith as they were under demonic oppression. What about the ten lepers in Luke 17? All right, ten lepers are healed. They're all healed, and then they leave, but only one of them offers thanks. And Jesus says to him, your faith has made you well. But what about the other nine? All right, so to, to say that you have to have faith in order to be healed, or the problem that you, you have with your illness is that you don't have faith, is just not biblical. Right? It's just not a biblical thing to say. It's, it's like saying that everyone whom Jesus met, he healed. He did not do that. Right? Third, God's healing of the sick rested upon his sovereign prerogative. God's healing of the sick rested upon His sovereign prerogative. Even in the apostolic era where healings were were more common. We could go to John 5 um, and read verses 1 to 15. You remember the man who's at the pool and he's laying around and there are all these other lame people laying around the pool. and, and, And Jesus goes up to him, there are, multitude, there are many there, and Jesus goes up to the one person and says, do you want to be healed? And he says, well, I don't have anyone to take me into the pool, and, and, and Jesus heals him. Jesus didn't heal the other people there. Well, you might say, well, well the other people just didn't ask. Well, neither did this guy. And he was just sitting there, and Jesus came to him. Jesus healed this man because he saw fit to do so. It was his divine prerogative. Let me ask you a few more questions. Why did Paul not receive healing from the thorn in the flesh? Whatever that was. Or or for his bad eyesight. 
Why did Paul, did he have doubt? Did he, did he not believe Jesus for his miracle? Why did Timothy not receive healing for his stomach problems? Why didn't Paul say to Timothy, believe God for your miracle, Timothy, and your stomach problem will be healed? Instead, he tells him to drink some wine, a common um, medicinal practice. Why was Paul's bodily illness not healed in Galatians? In Galatians 4, Paul says, I wanted to come to you, or I was hindered, and it was because I was sick. Why was Epaphroditus not healed? Philippians 2.25. You know, Paul expresses a lot of compassion for this man, but they didn't heal him. Why did Paul leave Trophimus sick in Miletus? 2 Timothy 4.20. So you have all these instances where you have what should be um, the kind of person who has the kind of faith to work the kind of miracle that we need. But they don't do it. Why? Well, the answer, friends, as you, as you know, is because God heals according to His working of providence. Our God is in the heavens, and He does whatsoever He pleases. He carries out His purposes according to His plan. There's a word that we need to know. It's called providence. Providence. Providence is God's care for His creation involving His persevering Um, the persevering of its existence, and the meticulous guiding of it to its intended purposes. God meticulously and carefully guides His world. God's works of providence, according to the Westminster Confession, is this. They're His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. The doctrine of providence tells us that the world and our lives are not ruled by chance or by fate, but by God. You remember Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Providence. Was God um, a cold, distant deity in the life of Joseph? No way. He's at work. It seems as if God may have abandoned Joseph. He's in prison and it's hard. But no, God is carrying out his purpose. Jesus' articulation of providence is Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very Hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are of far more value than the sparrows. Paul's definition of providence is Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God's providence is His wise, holy governance of you. He is watching over you in such a way that not a hair of your head can be touched without his sovereign permission, right? And he's not only sovereign, but he's good and he's wise, right? So we pray, James 5, God heal this person. We were praying that this morning um, in the elders meeting. We were praying that in our email threads, right? We pray God heal them. James 5 gives us that sort of... um, uh, directive. But we resign ourselves to God while we pray for Him to do what we desire. And we trust that His ways are best. One of my favorite 
uh, hymns. This is a hymn by William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. These clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. We know that it may look hard, but God is working. Right? And we can trust for God to heal His way. We can also trust for God to continue to speak His way. A few weeks ago, we were at the stockyards, and we were looking at the, uh, you know, these incredible creatures, these longhorns. And they were in their corral, and we were watching them, and our children were just amazed, and Savannah and I were amazed, and um, we were just having a good time. And this couple comes up to us, uh, probably late 50s, mid-50s, and, uh, you know, we start talking with them, and if you know my son, uh, there, no one can come up that we're not going to be able to talk to because Abram is going to engage him, which is a blessing. Um, we started talking with them, and we found out <clears throat> that they were Christians, and, and they were part of the Assemblies of God churches, and so they were charismatic, and uh, they were sweet, dear people, um, seemed to be believers, and we had a sweet time of fellowship with them. It was just great. It was just the Lord's providence at that moment, and we enjoyed it. Well, as they were turning to leave, uh, he said to me, he said, before I go, let me share something with you. And I said, okay. And he said, a few days ago, and I wrote it down like immediately afterwards, so I'm going to read it. A few days ago, the Lord spoke to me just as clearly as he has ever spoken to me. Two weeks ago, I lost my job. It's the first time I've been without work in 40 years. I was discouraged and sitting at home, anxious about the future. And I looked out my window, and I saw two mockingbirds playing. And God said to me as clear as ever, Do you see those birds? What do they do for a living? Where do they work? I take care of these birds. And I'm going to take care of you. So stop worrying. And so I got up. My wife is in the other room. I told her to pack her bags. And uh, I told her to pack her bags because we're going to Yosemite. God was going to take care of us. And here we are on our way to Yosemite. <laughs> uh, and he was teary-eyed as he shared the story. And I was teary-eyed as he shared the story. Because I was just thinking of the Lord's kindness to this dear brother. And uh, the question, though, is did God speak to him? Right? God came to him and said, do you see those birds out there? Did God speak to him? What do you think? I think, yeah, he did. I just think that he spoke to him in a different way than he thinks God spoke to him. (laughs) God absolutely spoke to him. I think it's clear that what happened there, this is a brother, and the Spirit of God brought to bear on his situation, Matthew 6, 25. 
For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What do you worry about when you lose your job? All of those things. Look at the birds of the air. Look at those birds out there. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. They don't have a job. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Who feeds those birds out there? Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? In verse 34, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. (laughs) This brother, I think, the Spirit of God, took the word of Matthew 6 and pressed it on his heart, and it was true. It was true. The Spirit of God, God was speaking to him, but what happens is we, we use the wrong vocabulary and definitions, and we sort of get all blurred. And The way that God speaks today is he takes his word, and he brings it home to our hearts, and he brings it to mind. When we see the mockingbirds with no worry, we think, look at those birds. They're not working for anything. They're just gathering what their Lord has provided. That's us, right? So we can expect God to continue to do that. And then lastly, we can expect God to continue to build up His church His way. When we say that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased, we are not saying that the Spirit, God the Spirit, no longer gives gifts to His people. Friends, you have been gifted by the Spirit um, with gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 that are the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gifts that God gives are meant for the edification of His church. And there are many of them. And you are gifted. <laughs> and it's evident to everyone who comes to Calvary Bible Church. All right? We're meant to use our gifts of preaching and teaching and exhortation, service, administration, giving, showing mercy, evangelism, etc. All these are meant to be used for the building up of God's church. That is God's way. The Spirit of God empowers His people to do His work. And also, the Spirit of God empowers His Word in the life of His people. Right? That is a God who's at work. Right? God is not a cold, distant deity. He's not ceased His work. He is at work. We know He is. And we want to understand His way and join Him in it. Right? So God help us to do that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to give us such a sufficient book and to give us your spirit, the spirit that lives within us, that is the third person of the Trinity, that is alive, personable, and carrying out the application of your redemptive work in our lives. Thank you for him. Let us never neglect him or look beyond him. Or forget him, but plead with you continually and trust that you are causing your spirit to work in our lives for your good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.